Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. It's Guest Thursday, our favorite day of the week. Uh, and we have a guest on today who Maz just met, yep. who I met. Um, you know, I keep talking about this online group that I've joined. We've joined that I go to occasionally. I met Michelle that way. Her name is Michelle. I forgot to even ask her. I'm going to go with Perone, but we'll find out if that's actually correct or not. Dr. Michelle, P-E-R-R-O-N, we'll find out. Um, but guess where she's from, Dr. Mary? Um, okay, that's taking too okay, long. I have no Wisconsin. Idea. Wisconsin. Practically our neighbor. Yes. We rarely meet strangers who are, you know, in our neck of the woods. They seem to always be in Southern California, which is hard this time of year. But, <laughs> you know, when whatever. It's 80 degrees there. Yeah, and 80 below here. So let's bring Michelle on. We'll figure out how to say her last name. At least Michelle can talk about snow with us. That's true. And we will have what I know is going to be a spectacular conversation because the one I had with her last week was absolutely that. Welcome, Michelle. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, say your last name for us. Peron. 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 Okay. <laughs> I was close-ish. I went more the Avita route and it's Peron. Okay. Good to know. I'm sorry that I forgot to ask you. Sorry. It's the French Canadian version. It's yeah. So Michelle, thanks for joining us. Um, your stories or your history with addiction is incredibly interesting. Oh. So let's just jump right into it because I want people to have time to learn from you, hear from you, and be inspired by you. So tell us what you do now, just to get the ball rolling. Now I work exclusively online in telemedicine or telehealth, I'm working with SUD of all descriptions. Um, and I work in a niche area called um, moderation or TSM. So I'm very blessed to be under the umbrella of traditional treatment, but, but doing this online moderation management stuff. And so I'm really happy about that. So tell us what that means, because we have just a little bit dipped our toe into this notion of moderation versus yeah. absolute abstinence. Not personally, we haven't dipped our toe into it, but with some guests, we've started dipping our toes into it. So tell us about what that means for you and for your clients. Yeah, well, I've been in the field for about 15 years and I've worked with hundreds of people, thousands of people, if you include the groups and so forth. What I started to notice was that so many people couldn't make the commitment to treatment because they had to go one size fits all. They had to choose abstinence or nothing else. And if they weren't ready or they were too fearful or too afraid, the only option they had was to go to inpatient treatment, leave your job for two weeks a month and, you know, get yourself straight and come back home to the same environment that you were in. And I was seeing that it just wasn't working. And I, rather than saying, well, I'm, you know, something's wrong with the client. I always said, well, I need to speak their language. It's like each client is a different country. If you will, so if I'm going to go to France, I better speak French or Greece. I better speak Greek, um, rather than saying that they need to speak my language and make the changes I want. So as I started to look to that, 
And I work uh, full-time in a, in, a, in a company where I'm a clinical supervisor, but there I was offered the opportunity to work in moderation. So I took over the group and uh, started working there. And I've been doing that for five years exclusively. And it became a very, very apparent that many people opted for this moderation because it was a way to ease into abstinence. Many people who join the group or I work with um, in my private practice do come to abstinence because the techniques that they're trained to do and um, also if they want to use medication to help along can get them to that place they want to go. So I like to say the, the notion of one size fits all is an old paradigm. It's time to open that up and recognize that there is more than one way to get to sobriety or what we call responsible drinking. Right. What does that mean? It's so obtuse. So yeah. we just know what that means. So that was one of the most interesting things that you said in a long series of interesting things the other day that alcohol bottles have on them drink responsibly. Well, what does that mean? Your example was if I'm at home and I drink two bottles of wine, I'm drinking responsibly. I'm not driving. I'm not risking yeah. anybody's life. That's hardly responsible drinking. That's right. But That's you're right. technically being responsible. So you, it, it really was, <laughs> wasn't it? Because it feels like that's a that's a nice little kind reminder from the alcohol industry to be moderate. But that's not really what it is at all. No, no. It's the way to be socially responsible. Don't drink and drive. But it's not the way to be personally responsible or healthy for that matter. Because yeah. alcohol, we get intoxicated. It's an intoxicant. So toxicity, poison, right? So the idea that we're going to overdrink, that's the problem. Drinking itself, alcohol itself is not the problem. Overdrinking is the problem. And many people look at me when I say, drinking's not the problem. I've been doing this 15 years. Talk to people with problems with alcohol all day. Drinking's not the problem. Overdrinking is the problem. So drink responsibly means, how do I take care of myself? Beyond this social responsibility, how do I take care of my physical body, my mental psycho psychology, my relationships, my emotional life? That's drinking responsibly. Yeah. When I'm taking care of myself and living healthy and living happy and meeting my potential and not, not going to a business dinner and obliterating the deal because I got trashed. Right. Salesmen have a really big issue with drinking and having to wine and dine. And many careers include that. And that's where it can get out of hand or going to a bar barbecue and forgetting anything you said and falling down on the dance floor at a wedding and all you don't go to the wedding to get blitzed and forget it you go to the wedding to celebrate the union and to visit all the people you haven't seen and to make new acquaintances and to enjoy dancing you don't go there to forget the whole thing and often this idea that we can drink and drink and over drink and it obliterates the experience it obliterates the reason we go in the first place that's the problem. So when we can dial that back down or eliminate it, then you're back into choice. And then you're back into uncoupling that, that behavioral mechanism that keeps that behavior in place. Yes, there's physiology, but it's not, we're not body separate from mind, separate from spirit. All those things need yeah. to be treated at the same time. Yeah. So you said a phrase to me last week that has stuck with me, and I even put it in your in the introduction on our links because I think it's it was so profound to me. You said when people live from the outcome, they change the outcome. Yes. 
So talk about that because I, I I mean, come on, does that make you go, wait, what? That's what I was making some noises just there. All right, Michelle, hold on. Before you answer that, I want to put this thought up. This approach makes so much sense to me. And even though I will look shallow, I love your glasses. (laughs) This is my mother, Michelle. All right. All right. So back to, back to this incredible sentence, people who live from the outcome will change the outcome. Talk about that. So in the world of the law of attraction, right? And and all of that woo-woo and getting to what is your truth, right? When we visualize, that is the most powerful tool that I've given clients is to visualize. Not So when they go through a drinking episode, like I have a wedding coming up, what am I gonna do? I'm the maid of honor. I don't wanna make a fool of myself. I have them walk through the wedding visualize the wedding in their mind, walk through getting there, getting ready, getting the dress on, getting the makeup, the hair, you know, going through the ceremony. I have them visualize every moment of that day. So it's well rehearsed and it's an automatic thought so that by the time they get to that day, they either do what they had visualized or better. And I've had that happen many, many times. So when they live from the the outcome, the successful outcome, rather than just letting it go to chance and say, well, I hope this works out. I hope I don't overdrink. I hope I forget. I hope I remember. And trying to force an outcome this way, you live from a successful outcome. And that is much more likely to happen and write it down. You're 85% more likely to have it happen. If you write the little novel, my day at Mary's wedding, you know? (laughs) Well, it's, it's really interesting because you and I talked about this and we talk about this all the time, but so much of what gets talked about on this program is under the guise of drinking, but is actually just how you should live life. So for instance, over Christmas, I got a little bit chubby. (laughs) I ate a lot of treats and I put on kind of an alarming amount of weight for me. And so, you know, the first couple of weeks of January, I did what I do, which was tried to be intentional about what I was eating, blah, blah, blah. Did not move that needle on my scale at all. Then I thought, all right, it's time to go back to some accountability. So I have this little app called My Fitness Pal, where you track what you eat. Mm. And in essence, it's the same thing, because what I do at the start of every day is I look at how many calories I'm supposed to eat, and I imagine getting to the end of the day and clicking end diary. And it's saying you came in under your calorie intake. Here's what you'll weigh in five weeks if you continue to do this. This thing always works for me because I'm doing exactly what you're saying. And here's the other thing that is true. Most often when I'm doing this little app, what I realize is, huh, I just walked into the kitchen to grab a snack, which before I was doing the app, I wouldn't have even remembered I grabbed. But because I'm doing the app and I'm going to have to put it into this diary, I'm not grabbing the snack. It's incredible. It does work for you. You've done that before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take you a step further with that. I want you to visualize your favorite outfit in your mind. You put it on at the current weight you're at. And I want you to see yourself at your ideal weight in that dress and love that. Love that. So you have a few extra pounds right now. I love that I have that because it's bringing something to my attention about what I need to do for self-care. That's great. Thank you, body, for showing me I need to take better care of myself. And I love myself 
in this dress, looking hot, looking great, going out to dinner. So you put yourself in that result of the losing weight as well. That's delightful. So this oh, yeah. is our spectacular mindfulness coach friend, Sandra McCutcheon, oh, who was a guest Sense. a couple of weeks ago. And she says, oh, there it is. Mindful awareness. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Love and your bigger picture and favorite outfit. Absolutely. That's a really lovely way to think of it rather than waking up every day and doing what I tend to do, which is why isn't the scale moving? I've done this for three days. Why haven't I lost five pounds? Which is absolutely what I did this morning. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and try, try to say, thank you, body, for being where you are today. And I joyfully look forward to getting into that dress because I know exactly which dress you're talking about. And yeah. it will not look good on me today. Yeah. And you, and also appreciate the curves that you have. Like that is gorgeous. I have a great butt or I love my long legs or I love my small waist. Like I'm doing great. Like really make, feel attractive in your own reflection because that's what you want. You really want the feeling of feeling, looking great, feeling confident, being, you know, just, you know, knocking that, being a knockout, knocking it out of the park, if you will, you know, just, that's the feeling we want to feel like all that and a bag of chips. So go for that. <laughs> I feel like the bag of chips might be part of what happened to get me here in the first place. Um, so I took I took uh, a psychology class my senior year of high school. And, you know, the big takeaway from that is um, Pavlov's dogs and the bell and all of that and B.F. Skinner and whatever that is. Um, but you said something when we talked the other day about op op operant right? Uh, yeah, operant conditioning. Mm -hmm. Okay. So talk about that because I think it's related to this. If I'm remembering, you know, 30 plus years ago of high school psychology. Yeah. So what happens in addiction is that you, you get many different effects. It affects how the brain thinks. It affects our emotions. It affects our body. It affects our physiology. So I like to say that the brain is the, is the material part and the brain does take on changes when we get into the addictive phase of things, right? And, and of course, these drugs of abuse are intended, there's an intention behind them to be addictive. It's not like they come in innocent and we make that. It's like they are addictive without us taking them. <laughs> and that's the effect they have on the body. So what happens, we develop rituals and habits around what happens physiologically. So our behaviors get locked in. So the closer that we create the reward to the urge, for instance, maybe it's four o'clock, we call that the witching hour, I start thinking about drinking. The sooner I take the drink, the more I lock in that behavioral pattern and reinforce what's happening physiologically. So that's that operant conditioning. I think about drinking, now I'm, maybe I start drinking earlier in the day until like 10 o'clock in the morning sometimes. I've had people working with children drinking at work at 10 in the morning in the school, like, oh boy, that's a problem. So. Mm -hmm. What happens is those two patterns get locked together. So your body's supporting the need for alcohol and your behaviors and your mindset and your emotions get into that fight or flight and then they lock in. So think of a drink, take a drink, think of a drink, take a drink. And so we lock that in. So when I work in the behavioral realm, what I like to do is pull that apart and put people back into choice making again. And I have a list of over 85 things people can do to start pulling that part and reverse or reversing that operating conditioning or operant conditioning that we call because behavior is a huge thing and ritual familiar oh the biggest magnet you might ever want something familiar I'll do it again and again 
even yeah. if it's harmful. Yeah. Were you going to say something? No. Um, all right. We have another. Well, I will. Oh, I mean, that, okay. that, that kind of summed up. I, I never drank at work, but the idea I was, all, I think if I remember this correctly, there were days when I was almost giddy, especially if I was teaching a six. I thought, right, I can go home and have a drink. Yeah. I was like, Whoa. And yeah. thankfully, I don't think like that anymore, but I wasn't aware I was doing that. But that is exactly what was happening to me. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've said this too, though. If I if I open a bottle of wine on a Monday, I certainly never, I mean, I've never drunk a bottle of wine by myself in my life. I, I don't have the capacity to do that, at least not at this point, and I have no desire to do it. <laughs> um, but if I have wine in the house, I absolutely, on Tuesday, around 3.30, I'll think, oh, well, I can't have a glass of wine yet, but maybe by 4.30. Or, you know, I mean, I it it happens so fast and it, yes it's just incredible how fast it can become the kind of thing that you start planning for or anticipating yes. even if it's just a glass mm -hmm. which is all it usually ever is for me i it's uh, it's shocking to me how much brain time it can take up yes. in such a small and fast way we have another comment michelle I think like anything, addiction or overdoing things not only has to do with a particular routine or addiction, but has to do with undealt issues also. I don't believe everyone who overdoes has an addiction. However, I do believe overdoing anything is a coping mechanism not to deal with other issues in the background. Yeah, that's a very good point. Do you have a thought on that, Michelle? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely. Well done, John. <laughs> <laughs> good job, John. You got not, it in the class. Yeah. Not ever have I ever met a single person in the in my history of my career from 2008 forward um, that does not have an underlying issue. And if they say, oh, no, I just like the taste of alcohol, let me give me an hour and I'll show you. I'll prove you different because everybody has something because alcohol does become a coping mechanism, whether it's boredom. The brain sees boredom as stressful. And so that's drinking out of stress. If you're drinking out of boredom, drinking out of being tired, it becomes the hungry, angry, lonely, tired option default mechanism because it not only does it work extremely efficiently for those things, but also it becomes the go-to. It, it moves up in its priorities in your brain so that it becomes the go-to every single time. So yes, unaddressed issues always underlying the compulsive use of alcohol. So unwinding all of that, I used to teach theories of addiction in college to students who were becoming SUD counselors. And I used to teach 35 different theories of addiction. So it's not one or the other, mm -hmm. it's all of the above. So yeah. when you're when you're working through this with someone who has an addiction, you have to very quickly go through those 35 theories in your mind to find which combination of Rubik's cube each person is. And that's the challenge and that's the interest. That's what keeps me interested and engaged to find out each person's Rubik's cube and how they go back together again. So that's a really interesting way of putting it. So I have, I have a question for you. So self-coping, uh, as you just mentioned, I. So when I was in rehab, between the two, the the intensive, the intensive treatment and the non-intensive treatment, there was about sixty of us. Mm -hmm. And out of those sixty, I think I met five people. It turns out became alcoholics or drug addicted alcoholics because they were trying to deal with what they while they were there they were diagnosed with um some form of um uh, bipolar disorder 
Do you see that a lot yourself in, the, in some of your patients? Yeah, and I'm going to say something that's probably outside of the box here. <laughs> but you can, <laughs> conditioned response can become mental illness. And when someone is actively drinking or short, shortly within a six-month period of stopping drinking, often they're misdiagnosed with bipolar or something far worse because huh. this is how it's manifesting secondarily. I would have to say that most of the clients that I see that have bipolar, it takes at least a few years to actually confirm that as being true of sobriety because everything is up for grabs in the beginning. I have seen people begin their career as codependent and now everybody is on a spectrum of codependency. Even I've had codependence too. I've married alcoholics. That's why it's my bag and my life's work, right? So <laughs> what happens when you start out codependent, you get on the spectrum as it's unaddressed and unrecognized, it can get worse and worse and worse. The highest end of that becomes things that look like and smell like and walk like a duck, like bipolar, like manic depression, like even um, um, personality disorders. So people who are um, uh, histrionic or people who are dependent personality disorders, they become ways of being repeated over and over, become characters, become mental health issues because it's it's unaddressed codependence codependent fear that's gone completely unresolved and unbridled and it becomes this pattern that is so predictable that now we can call it a mental health thing so i've i've worked with people who have bipolar who who have no symptoms of it once they start thinking properly and clearly and once they get it and once they understand it it doesn't have to be this big assigned mental health thing and we all know diagnosing right is yeah. the way to get paid yeah. <laughs> so we can give someone a diagnosis that will stick it follow the money unfortunately and all things right and so i've seen people come through my my care over the years that that will have borderline personality disorder and now for some people there is a there are some missing structures in the brain and borderline if it's started early in the developmental stage zero to four years old those structures don't develop in the brain and they grow up and they can have this condition. But sometimes we diagnose people with, with borderline personality because they have ways of being that have been repeated and repeated and repeated, ways of understanding the world and way, ways of dealing with things that just get repeated and then that becomes character and then that becomes mental health issues. Wow. And let's just add some alcohol, some cocaine, some methamphetamine, some heroin in there to just really you know, stew, mix the pot and yeah. then try and untangle that in the acute phase, in the, in the phase of, you know, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which, which also manifests in a lot of different ways. So See, I, I told you this conversation was going to be interesting, <laughs> yes. didn't I? We don't muck a bell. <laughs> no, we do not. Um, you said something that struck, uh, um, Oh, I, I know what I wanted to ask you because we, we talked about this the other day too, which I also found fascinating. So places like Canada and parts of Scandinavia and other places in the world use um, drugs on the front end of trying to deal with this that in America, we don't really use. Talk a little bit about that, will you? Because this was, mm. this was new information to me. Yeah. So... In the U.S. here, we're deeply ingrained and lobbied and held accountable to an abstinence-based model. 
it is so prevalent that this volunteer group has also gotten the buy-in from all the court systems and all of the probation and all the legal stuff and and really all of treatment is pretty much determined by an abstinence-based um, program right and so that's the american version because it was born here but um, i work in tsm which is the sinclair method and that is the use of naltrexone not every morning because it wears off your receptors in six hours so I prefer it when people take it at the witching hour. And then if you use it during the, as a TSM uh, help or a Sinclair method means, you would take that pill an hour before you drink and drink as usual. And you only take it on the days that you drink. What that does is kind of create a barrier, or I like to say protected, like a, think of it as a condom for the brain. You have protected drinking, and then you go forth and, and you drink as usual, and you will naturally lose an interest in drinking. So often, Frequently, people find themselves drinking one or two and just saying, okay, I'm done with it. I don't feel like it anymore. And at, and eventually, over time, every time you drink, you take your pill and you'll, you'll lose an interest. You'll just not want it at all. And these results are really incredibly enhanced when you are on a high-quality um, high fish oil. So five grams of fish oil can make or break that whole process. I've seen people drinking 100 drinks. This is not a lie. I recently had a client drinking a hundred drinks a week. And he was on fish oil for his heart. He started naltrexone not knowing the fish oil thing. And within six days, lost his entire interest to drink. He didn't go into withdrawals he, because he titrated down. The, the alcohol didn't taste the same. He was done with it. And I'm finding, I work uh, with Dr. John Umhau in my private practice and refer often to him. And, and we're both seeing this and it's incredible results that people who are drinking to dangerous levels with combined with the fish oil, stop drinking in a relatively short period of time. Now, Trexone alone, you can go anywhere from three months all the way out to three years. But when you take the fish oil, you're much more likely to get that extinction within the first six months to a year, if not sooner. Six days is the fastest. In fact, we're going to put them in a book because it was remarkable. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's a really potent... Um, pharmaceutical um, omega-3, which has got a lot of good tests on it, and that's Visipa. Visipa is an excellent medication. Not that I recommend medications, but if you're able to talk to your physician about that, that's the one that that is like the gold standard of DHA. Uh, it's V-E-S-C-I-P-A. V-E-S-C-I-P-A. Okay. I, uh, Michelle, I've actually got two questions. Um, one of them is, and this i just looked into this very very briefly um so i presume there isn't a danger of someone getting addicted to that medication Vesipa. or no. finding a behavioral trait where they get obsessed with taking it no no it the naltrexone is um an antagonist it's 100 antagonist rather than agonist or a partial agonist like suboxone or methadone right so naltrexone if you can imagine is you've probably heard of Narcan when people yeah. have um, uh, overdose for heroin, they will yeah. inject them intramuscularly, which is very harsh <laughs> with Narcan. Think of naltrexone as the weaker, skinnier guy on the beach getting the sand kicked in his face. <laughs> it's the weaker part, but it's actually extremely effective for alcohol, um, treating alcohol cravings and so forth. So many people take it once a day, which for some people that works, but often, 
Uh, if you take it every day, it reduces your emotional range. So non-compliance starts to happen because people just don't have the emotions that they're used to having over time. So the TSM method where you only take it on the days you drink and only an hour before you drink, um, that means that eventually you will reach days where you're not drinking. If you're a daily drinker, you will get days off and then your emotional range will go back up again. And, and so you have that range, but you have that protection. And it's strongly advised that on the days you don't drink and you're, you're not taking your pill to go do some high dopamine reward um, sort of activities such as like, well, for us, go outside and shovel and come back in the house and have a hot drink or a hot shower or a yeah. soda. Or, you know, if you're really hungry, you have a really good dinner at the end of the day, a, a, a steak dinner or, you know, physical exercise. And then sitting in your chair is going to feel so much better or lying down in bed is going to feel better. Or if you've been in a noisy environment, finally peace and quiet and just being in the peace and quiet. Mm -hmm. so these high reward um, things, walking in the woods. If you sit in an office all day doing something that is a high reward activity on your days off of drinking with the naltrexone. That's very interesting. So another, my other question is, I know this would be a huge study, but um, has, with say, so it's Fisho and, and omega-3s, Would has anyone ever tried doing a study with changing someone's diet so they, for example, have fresh salmon? Yes, a couple actually. Of <laughs> there was, there was at a university in Maryland, I'm not quite certain if it's Johns Hopkins, but they did do um, um, an inpatient treatment for SUD in combination with the ketogenic diet because ketogenic, uh -huh. because alcohol is a carbohydrate once it's, it's burned off, right? It becomes a, a lot of carbohydrate and it's really high in calorie. And if it's not used, it's stored as fat. Hence you get the beer gut or you start gaining weight because you're drinking so much those extra calories. But they did the ketogenic diet because it forces the body to become fat adapted you're getting enough calories, you're getting high density nutrients. So it's feeding the body what it needs. And you're eating a good combination of high fat, moderate protein, low carb. So you're eating vegetables, you're eating those things that you need to get, but you're, the, the big turnaround is to get more fat. Once the brain gets fat adapted, it no longer craves. It no longer craves meals. You're, you can easily go 24 hours with eating. I, I've been doing it for five years and I'm home at I eat once a day. I'm good with that. And I'm not starving and I'm not manipulating. I eat what I want. I just eat once a day, <laughs> high fat. I'm very happy. And, but once the brain becomes fat adapted, then it's almost like being on NOS. Like your brain is, is, is 85% fat. If I'm not mistaken, it's high fat. So when you give it fat to burn, it likes it. It works more efficiently. It works longer. And if you think about our ancestors, if hunter gatherers, like way back, right, we would look at how did they eat? When the vegetation was available, they ate that. In the fall, berries would come around. Berries were a carbohydrate, which creates appetite. So then they would eat their berries and fruit in the fall. So they would get hungrier. They would eat more. They would gain weight. And now in the winter, I'm protected. So by the time January and February comes around, it's really cold. There's no food available. I have this, I go into ketogenesis every spring. That's what my ancestors must have done. And I'm now eating the dried fish or the dried reindeer or whatever it was. I'm in ketogenesis and that then I'm losing and using the fat that I've stored until I hit spring and the shoots start coming up and I got the sprouts and then I'll start back into that. And then we go around and that's eating seasonally. And that is also the, the um, principle of um, wild fit by Erica yeah. Mendes, right? That's how they work with that seasonal eating, meaning that your body needs to 
to, to do what it was designed to do. So we're in the biorhythm, we're with the planet, we're doing what our ancestors did, which kept us healthy, physical, in good condition. You don't hear a lot about cavemen being depressed. <laughs> they had to do things, right? They had to get up there and... and yeah, they sure had time to be depressed, but that's probably part of your point. All right, John has a second question for us. I'm curious how many addicts can plan to take a medication one hour before they begin drinking for mm. the day. I wondered that too, Michelle. So this this has to be the kind of thing from I'm supposing where somebody's really committed to changing they're like you can't you can't sort of force somebody to do this if they don't want to quit drinking correct like anything you can lead a horse to water but you cannot make them drink right yeah. well you can hold them there long enough till they get thirsty <laughs> but the idea is that if someone comes to me for help right I give them the best of what I know and that means when they decide, yes, I'd like to try naltrexone, then I always add in that's, then that's a non-negotiable. That becomes something I do. It takes me 10 seconds to do this. I need, if I'm not, if I'm not going to give up alcohol all at once, all like all at once and go into inpatient treatment, then the next best thing is I can commit to taking this pill. It's a no brainer. It's an easy thing to do. Do it. And, and, I, and I take a page out of AA where they say, made a decision made a decision, turned my will and over to the care of God, as I understand. Well, all of the 12 steps are written in the past tense. So I often use a step or two in there because the logic is correct. The past tense is important because it indicates I have done, I have taken action. It's done and over with. I don't go back and redecide every day. I think I'm going to do this. Take the decision out of the daily taking of that pill. You don't get, you decide now today with me. And then that's just non-negotiable. It's a no brainer. It's not up for discussion. It's not, and so when it comes in your brain, I've already planted that seed with you that it's not up for it's not up for grabs. There's no day when you don't take the pill; you just take it. And the other thing is, if you've been taking it and you suddenly stop because you want the full buzz, it has changed the number of receptors on the cell in the brain, which can lead to some way over drinking and can be dangerous. So you don't want to do that. If you are going to stop taking it and start drinking without it, you need to leave many months in between for your brain to downregulate those receptors, put in a lot of non-alcohol related reward activities, and then try again with all of the behavioral skills. It's dangerous territory. I've had a few people try it and have it work, but it takes discipline. And that's where we get back. If you take the VIA strength or VIA strength survey at the University of Pennsylvania, it's free to take hundreds of thousands of people have taken it. There's a list that little quiz will give you a list of 24 strength characteristic strengths. And over the testing of all of the people who've ever taken it in the last 10 years, the lowest strength for all people as a as a group is self regulation. <laughs> teaching people self regulation is a skill. It's a skill just like kettlebells or lifting weights or running. Yeah. Yeah. Skill that one learns to self-regulate and and that's where we start. Wow. Well, Michelle, we agree with Ann Riley. Yeah. Interesting guest. <laughs> Super know your stuff and incredibly articulate. Oh, thank um, you. We could go on and on, but I know people have lives to get to, including you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, including me right, too, I guess. To but and too. presumably you have things to do today as yeah, well, Michelle. I'm today. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, it was this has been so 
interesting. It was a joy to meet you and listen to what you do. This is. It's yeah, I hope to see you again. It was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to put in this quick plug. If you're watching this and haven't yet done some sort of like, love, blah, blah, blah on our little Facebook deal, would you do that, please? Because there are a lot of people watching and that would make a big difference to the algorithms. We're just going to go right to oh, that. Go with algorithms, make a difference to the algorithms. If you enjoyed this conversation with Michelle, which I know you did because these numbers have stayed static the whole time, then please like and then go ahead and share it too. Because as I said in the post, somebody in your life, whether you know yes, it or not, absolutely. needs to hear this information. You don't know it, maybe. There's a lot of secretly drinking people. Just share it. And COVID drinking has been a real uptick this year. So oh, yeah. I bet it has. I yeah. think too, if they need to get a hold of me or find me on the web, they can go to LinkedIn and just put my name in, Michelle Barrow. Yeah. And, and I, that's the easiest way to find me. I don't have a website. I used to have one, but I don't have one now. I just too busy. I need to hire someone to do that. So yeah. Welcome to that world as well. Michelle, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, thank you, thank so, you. so, so thank you for having me. Stay warm. Yeah, you, you, too. you as well. <laughs> we will talk to you all next Tuesday. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.